No matter where he went, controversy always found a way to follow. He was wildly popular and undoubtedly skilled at his trade, as he was apt to remind people of constantly. But he said and did some of the most vile and offensive and shocking and racist things at every turn on his rise to stardom. And so he was reviled by as many people as by whom he was revered. Even some of the people on his own team, under his own tent, hated him. But while the incumbent's friends and foes disagreed on many things, one thing that they did not disagree upon was his ability to generate headlines and capture the spotlight at every turn. At the time of the events that today's episode of Cancelled is focused on, he was still a relative newcomer to the game. His meteoric rise to the top just a few years earlier was as extraordinary as it was unprecedented. It, of course, did not take long for his adversaries to rally together to try to knock the controversial star off of his perch. And after four years, from when he came out of nowhere and climbed to the top of the mountain, where he stood for another four years, his opponents were determined to knock him down, perhaps a peg or two, and maybe even once and for all. While his adversaries searched high and low for a viable challenger, within a few months after the contest began, a consensus started to coalesce around an aging veteran, someone who had already reached the top of the mountain of his career, a man born and raised in the Northeast, and a man who was well-liked even by his opponents. After being deigned, perhaps by circumstance, but perhaps by the higher powers, to serve as that challenger, the two men engaged in one of the most high-profile and contentious races that this country had ever seen. Literally, families were split up. Fights broke out at bars as virtually the entire nation was split on the issue. There were no undecideds. And as the fall rolled around and the contest between the two was finally entering that home stretch, the race somehow looked poised to finish exactly where it started. In just a handful of swing states in the Northeast and the Rust Belt. The year was 1910. The incumbent was none other than Tyrus Raymond Cobb, nicknamed the Georgia Peach. The challenger was Napoleon Lajouet, nicknamed the Frenchman. And the race was to finish first in the American League in batting average. And the prize for the champ was a Chalmers Model 30, as well as being permanently etched in the history books as the 10th champion of the American League's batting title. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, wait a second, I don't think Ty Cobb or Nat Lajway were ever banned from baseball. So what does this story have to do with the theme of this, the second season of Cancelled, which allegedly centers on such banishments and punishments? Well, if that's what you were thinking, you would be right. Neither of the two future Hall of Famers faced any discipline as a result of this contest even though Cobb probably should have been, albeit for very different reasons. But St. Louis Browns manager Jack O'Connor and team assistant Harry Howell did. Both, in fact, were initially fired by their team for events relating to this contest, and then were ultimately banned from baseball altogether. But we'll get to that in a moment. But before we can get to how and why that happened, a little background about the context and the contenders is necessary. First, a word about the era. The events from 1910 arose during the period in Major League Baseball history that later became known as the Dead Ball Era, which was the period between 1900 and 1919, when home runs were hard to come by. But that didn't mean that there weren't players who couldn't smash a fastball to the fans' delight. It did mean that batting average not home runs, RBIs, or a pitcher's wins, was the most important baseball stat in the game. So the stars of this period were players like Honus Wagner and the two focal points of today's episode, not the prolific home run hitters like Babe Ruth that emerged during the next era in professional baseball. And this was also a time when statistics were not necessarily collected 
in a standardized or contemporaneous manner. Indeed, stats were often compiled by sports writers from various media outlets and then later sent to the league office. And unlike home runs, which can be measured neatly in one linear and counting number, batting average changed on a daily basis, going up and then down, and involved relatively complex math. As a result, mistakes and inconsistencies in tabulating a batting average race were common. Next, a word about the players. While most baseball fans know who Ty Cobb was, some may justifiably know less about the trajectory of Nap Lajouet, a trajectory which, like the stories of many great contests, involves litigation in Pennsylvania. Napoleon was born on September 5, 1874 in Rhode Island to Jean-Baptiste and Selina Guillotine Lajouet, both of whom were French-Canadian and had immigrated to the United States just a few years before his birth. As a young man, Napoleon received little formal education, and shortly after his dad passed away prematurely, he dropped out of school so he could work at a textile mill to help support his family. He also began working as a taxi driver with a horse and buggy and was known as Slugging Cabby around his small northeastern town. Over his family's objections, he also began playing semi-professional baseball for the local Woonsocket team. Because his family did not approve of him playing ball, Lajouet went by the alias Sandy when he played. His dad had believed that ball players were bums and nobody respected them. But Lajouet, who received the nickname Larry from a teammate because he had trouble pronouncing his last name, was determined to nevertheless give it a shot. At six foot one and 200 pounds, Lajouet was so strapping that he reportedly received off-season offers from carnival promoters to be a model for the male physique. And as word of his athletic prowess spread, he was signed by the Class B New England League's Fall River Indians in 1896. And that year, he led his team in doubles, triples, home runs, and batting average, and in the process caught the eye of many major league teams. Shortly thereafter, he was purchased by the Philadelphia Phillies of the National League. By his second season in the pros, Lajway had already emerged as a star, leading the National League in slugging percentage and batting 363 in the process. He excelled again the following season, batting 378, but his season was shortened due to injury. While several of Lajway's early seasons with the Phillies were shortened due to such injuries, it was nevertheless clear that he was one of the game's best players. However, after discovering he was actually being paid less than his teammate and roommate in 1900 by $400, despite express promises by the team's owner to the contrary, Lajouet was determined to auction his services to the highest bidder, even if it were one in the rival upstart American League. And so, in 1901, Lajouet did the unthinkable by signing with the crosstown rivals, the Philadelphia Athletics. Lajouet was considered the first superstar to jump ship from the NL to the AL. His joining of the league eventually inspired other stars to join it as well, and it instantly increased the attendance numbers in the new league. Some have even said that it was Lajouet that made the AL there to stay. He brought his size and strength to bear at the plate, where he was an efficient hitter with a liquid stroke, and he was capable of hitting for power, but often content to just make solid contact, and drive the ball to every pocket of the field. And in the field, he played every position except pitcher before settling on second base. A New York Sun columnist gushed that Lajouet was living poetry at second base, a big, swarthy jungle cat whose superiority oozes from him. In that inaugural 1901 season, Lajouet batted a record-setting 426, a mark that has never been eclipsed in the junior circuit since. He was so feared by his AL foes that he also became the first American League player to ever be intentionally walked with the bases loaded that season. And he won the first triple crown of the 20th century, leading the majors in virtually every significant category, including hits, doubles, home runs, runs, RBIs, batting average, slugging, and on-base percentage depending on what stat one considers to be the fourth in the mythical quadruple crown, Lajouet had won that as well. 
but the Phillies did not take kindly to Lajoie joining its business rival on the other side of the city of brotherly love. And so, like any rich businessman, John Rogers, the owner of the Phillies, went to the courts to force Lajoie into an untenable position of being prohibited from playing for any other team. Rogers and the Phillies alleged that Lajoie's actions violated the so-called reserve con clause in the player's contract. While Court of Common Pleas disagreed with the Phillies' interpretation of the clause in Lajoie's contract, allowing him to play a little longer with the athletics, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court reversed, finding that Lajoie was indeed bound by the terms of the contract, and then the court issued an injunction that prohibited Lajoie from playing for any team other than his original club. This decision was issued at a time of bitter contempt between the National League and the upstart American League. The president of the National League, Jim Hart, called the decision a fatal blow to the emerging rival league, as it likely would prevent additional stars from switching leagues. But the American League was determined not to lose one of its golden geese. Creative lawyering discovered that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court injunction was only enforceable within the state of Pennsylvania, meaning Lajoie could keep playing in the American League so long as he did not play within the four corners of the state in which the injunction had issued. In other words, other than a road trip or two to play the athletics, Lajoie could continue playing. Accordingly, athletics manager Connie Mack made the business decision of trading Lajoie to the terrible Cleveland Broncos as a way of repaying Cleveland's owner for providing financial assistance to the struggling athletics years earlier, and of keeping the American League's best player in the league. The move, which kept Lajoie in the American League for the rest of his career, was credited as saving the league. When Lajoie arrived in Cleveland, attendance numbers immediately skyrocketed. Lajoie's first home opener for Cleveland on April 28, 1903, drew a crowd of 19,867 fans, higher than the average attendance of the 2010 Cleveland Indians, and nearly caused a stampede when fans pressed against the ropes in the outfield and ultimately barged onto the field. In fact, in Lajoie's first plate appearance, the Bat Boy presented him with a bouquet. <laughs> Lajoie's successes weren't just realized in terms of ticket sales. Indeed, soon after his arrival, the team turned its season around, finishing with its first winning record in franchise history. And during his first full season with Cleveland, Lajoie won the batting title with a 378 batting average. The New York Giants' famous John McGraw apparently wanted to sign him. But perhaps in a move that LeBron James debated more than a century later, Lajoie proclaimed his love for Cleveland and stayed with the Broncos. In 1903, the city and the team's love for Lajoie became so intense that they literally changed their name for him. For the first time ever, a team was eponymously named for its superstar, becoming known as the Cleveland Naps. He went on to win the American League batting title in 1903 and 1904, batting 344 and 376 in the process. And shortly after, the American League and National League made peace. And now, Lajoie became the player manager in 1904, meaning that he was the star, the namesake, and manager of the team for the following few seasons. But while he continued to thrive as one of the best players in the league and in Cleveland over the next several seasons, he did not win any more batting titles while wearing both hats for the team. Indeed, an upstarter in Detroit took the title from him in 1907, 1908, and 1909. And as the Cleveland Naps team performance sagged in 1909, Lajoie asked to be replaced as manager so he could focus on playing ball, a request that was ultimately granted. All of this, of course, set the stage for that great race of 1910, in which Lajoie and his four American League batting titles would go head-to-head -head with the newcomer from Detroit in the latter's quest to win an unprecedented four consecutive batting titles. And that newcomer, of course, was Ty Cobb.
Tyrus Raymond Cobb, nicknamed the Georgia Peach, is considered one of the most hated men to ever play the game. Cobb was born in a small rural community in Georgia in 1886. Cobb's mother stayed at home, and his father, a bitter taskmaster, was a state senator. Cobb started playing sandlot ball as soon as he was able to swing a bat. Now, unlike Lajoie, Cobb's father actually encouraged him to be a ball player, so much so that Cobb was said to have never forgotten hearing his dad tell him when he tried out for the Aniston Steelers, do not come home a failure. Heeding that advice, Cobb made the team. Cobb's play for the Steelers was extraordinary and quickly noticed by the pros. In 1905, his contract was purchased by the Detroit Tigers. That same year, Cobb's mother fatally shot his father with a pistol that his father had purchased for her. Court records indicate that Mr. Cobb had suspected his wife of infidelity and was sneaking past his own bedroom window to catch her in the act. She saw the silhouette of what she presumed to be an intruder and, allegedly acting in self-defense, shot and killed her own husband. As a result, Mrs. Cobb was charged with murder and ultimately released on a $7,000 bond. Later, a sympathetic Georgia jury acquitted his mother of involuntary manslaughter in March of 1906. But Ty Cobb, by his own reckoning, never got over the tragedy. Cobb later attributed his ferocious play to his late father, saying, I did it for my dad. He never got to see me play, but I knew he was watching me, and I never let him down. Cobb's debut came just three weeks after his mother killed his father. When he first came up, he was subjected to the customary rookie hazing, but the ill-tempered Cobb did not respond positively, often lashing out at teammates. And in just his first few seasons, Cobb had established himself as one of the most disliked players on the team. In 1907, seemingly out of nowhere, Cobb embarked on a three-year tear that Major League Baseball had never seen before. He led the Tigers to three American League pennants and won the batting title in each season. And he littered the stat sheet with numbers. And in 1909, won what would be the equivalent of the quintuple crown, if it existed, leading the league in RBI, runs, home runs, batting average, and stolen bases. Along with Lajoie, Cobb had emerged as one of, if not the best, baseball player the game had ever seen. But what Cobb did on the field, unfortunately, was only half the story. For it is said that he was as short on fuse as he was long on talent. What he did off the field was disgraceful and probably should have made him a subject of an episode of this season of Cancelled, rather than those from the St. Louis Browns who we are going to discuss shortly. Cobb, you see, fought with opponents, teammates, and even fans, especially if they were darker skinned. It is said that in 1907, during spring training in Augusta, Georgia, a black groundskeeper named Bungie Cummings, whom Cobb had known for years, attempted to shake Cobb's hand or pat him on the shoulder. Cobb, a known racist, was offended by the overly familiar greeting. Cobb responded by attacking the groundskeeper. When Cummings' wife tried to defend him, Cobb allegedly choked her, and the assault was only allegedly stopped when catcher Charles Schmidt knocked Cobb out. In 1908, Cobb attacked a black laborer in Detroit who complained when Cobb stepped into the freshly poured asphalt. Cobb was found guilty of battery, but the sentence was suspended. One time, Cobb climbed into the stands and beat a heckler to a pulp, indifferent to the fact that it was a man who had lost one hand and most of the other. Cobb later responded, I don't care if he has no feet. He was also known to sharpen his spikes before games so he could impale his opponents. As he once stated, In legend, I am a sadistic, slashing, swashbuckling despot, a draco of the diamond who waged war in the guise of sport. Cobb was universally regarded as nasty, brutish, mean-spirited, and violent. And despite his greatness on the field, his own teammates disliked him so much 
that the Tigers even tried to trade him to none other than the Cleveland Naps for an inferior player. The Naps management, however, declined. Cleveland owner Charles Summers said, Maybe my guy isn't quite as good a batter as Cobb, but he's much nicer to have on the team. And seeing Cobb lead the league in multiple categories year after year, and in the World Series for three consecutive seasons, albeit in three losing efforts, made much of the league and the baseball-watching community sick of seeing the villain on top. And so, with Cobb's three consecutive batting titles in hand, and Lajue's four total in his back pocket, the stage was set for the most controversial, high-profile race for the batting title in baseball history. The 1910 baseball season began with President William Howard Taft throwing out the first pitch, the beginning of a White House tradition that persists to this day. Baseball at that time had grown in popularity to record levels. The 92 million people in the country, none of whom had been disillusioned yet by world wars, were gripped by what was indisputably the national pastime. The cultural weight of the sport had grown to such a degree that few people could be found who didn't have an opinion on who the best team or best player was. While there was little doubt that Cobb was the best player in the sport at that particular moment, there was still room for debate about who the best of all time was, and the soft-spoken Northeasterner who saved the American League was undoubtedly a part of that conversation. And during 1910, that debate raged, because the personas of Cobb and Lajue could not have been more different. Sports fans found it easy to take sides in their duel. The muscular Lajue was the opposite of Cobb, smooth, sociable, and wildly popular. And what made that season's batting title race particularly interesting was that Hugh Chalmers of the Chalmers Automobile Company announced a promotion in which a Chalmers Model 30 automobile would be given to the batting champions for Major League Baseball's American and National Leagues. And as there were only three players not named Cobb or Lajue in American League history that had ever won a batting title as of that date, and with Lajue unencumbered by his managerial duties after that 1909 season, it was those two that were the odds-on favorites to win the title that season as well. By the middle of the summer of 1910, right around the time, conventions typically narrow the electoral field to two candidates, one per party, all of the other challengers had fallen off. And by July, it was a two-man duel between Cobb and Lajue. And in the baseball-watching community, it was hard to find anybody that was undecided in terms of who they were rooting for. Every American was invested. At a Detroit social club, an ardent Cobb supporter reportedly suffered a fatal heart attack while arguing with a Lajue backer. Nationwide, so-called rooting clubs formed for Lajue and for Cobb. As Cobb recalled years later in his typically self-serving autobiography, written with the help of journalist Al Stump. The Chalmers contest became a more vital issue than the political rift between President Taft and former President Teddy Roosevelt, or the crackdown on trusts by the Supreme Court. The mania over the batting race was about the soul of the sport. From many baseball fans' perspectives, it was a fight between good and evil. As the second half of the summer commenced that year, however, Lajue was running away with the title. All the pundits and experts who were looking at the numbers and analyzing the data had Lajue beating Cobb by 10 to 20 points and driving off with that Chalmers. Indeed, in late July, Lajue was hitting above 400 while Cobb was hovering around 380. The Nate Silvers of the age were looking at the numbers and just couldn't see a world in which Cobb could ultimately beat Lajue. And other experts saw more fundamental limitations to Cobb's campaign, 
making a repeat performance over his challenger look less likely. The peach, after all, was dogged by persistent and growing eye trouble. And photos from the time show Cobb wearing smoked glasses. He even missed several games when the sun shone too brightly. From the experts' perspectives, these technical and fundamental variables limited Cobb's prospects of ending up on top. But some believed Lajoie's lead was nothing more than a mirage. The star infielder, after all, was 35 years old, while Cobb was only 23. Some experts, indeed, started to coalesce around a very different projection, namely that Lajoie would fall off and Cobb would surge. And in late August of 1910, that prediction proved prescient. Cobb started putting together a historic comeback right as Lajoie's batting average started to slip, bottoming out at 351, his lowest average of the year on August 27th. The word was that Cobb's late campaign surge was due in part to the fact that his vision trouble had abated. Indeed, three days after Lajoie reached his nadir, Cobb's batting average soared to 370, nearly 20 points higher than Lajoie. Cobb had not just closed the gap, he had leapfrogged Lajoie. The script had been flipped, and Cobb was once again the frontrunner, much to the chagrin of many in the baseball-watching community. When the month of August closed, Cobb had an 11-point lead over the challenger. In the face of that 11-point deficit with just over one month of baseball left to be played, the math was not favorable for Lajoie, but he had a path, and that path ran through the Northeast and, of course, the Rust Belt. The race was officially down to six swing states and two hands full of head-to-head contests, and during the first week or so of September, both Lajoie and Cobb both barnstormed St. Louis, Chicago, and then won another stadiums. And during that stretch, Cobb actually slipped with a handful of hitless games, while Lajoie made modest gains to start closing the gap. And by the middle of September, Lajoie was batting 365, while Cobb was batting 368. And while Lajoie had fought hard in the first few swing series and climbed a full 10 batting average points, Cobb was holding serve. He still had a three-point lead. But while Lajoie made huge strides in getting back into the race, the experts stressed that the bite he took in the Cobb's lead was probably not big enough. Because over the next two weeks, Lajoie had critical but unfavorable swing series against Cobb's Detroit Tigers, the New York Yankees, the Boston Red Sox, and of course, the best team in baseball that season, the Philadelphia Athletics. Now, Cobb's schedule also had matchups against the Yankees in Boston, but he had the advantage of having no more games against the Philadelphia Athletics and getting to play Lajoie's substantially worse Cleveland Naps in the two's head-to-head matchups. Lajoie was set to go into a wood chipper. But there was hope on the other side. If Lajoie could keep it close, the experts knew that his season ended with a four-game series against the worst team in Major League Baseball, the St. Louis Browns. If he could keep it close and win some swing series along the way, the series against the Browns could push him over the top, they thought. Lajoie delivered when he faced this critical crucible. The good-hearted Northeasterner powered forward, not only not losing points during these unfavorable matchups, but actually, miraculously, gaining them, increasing his batting average to 371 by September 27th. Indeed, on that day, Cobb went 0 for 4, and his batting average dropped to 370, creating a .001 point lead for Lajoie. But that razor-thin lead Lajoie had was short-lived. The very next day, Cobb went 3 for 4, hopping ahead of Lajoie again, and beginning an end-of-season tear for the ages, going 15 for 24 through the end of the season. While Lajoie was hovering in the low 370s, Cobb defied the odds and by October 5th passed the 380 mark again. 
The stage, then, was set for an epic battle in the final swing series of the season, Cobb against the White Sox and Lajue against the lowly Browns, with the former maintaining a seven-point lead going into it. On the sixth, Cobb once again held his own, going two for four and actually moving his batting average up. But Lajue, feasting on the lowly St. Louis Browns pitching, went three for four, jumping three points up. Cobb's lead was cut down again to just four points. Both players had just a handful of games left to play. While Lajue had three more against the worst team in baseball, Cobb's late-season surge made it look challenging, if not impossible, to catch and then pass the incumbent. And when the two candidates entered October 9th, D-Day, the last day of the season, which, barring future challenges or recounts, would be the day on which the race would likely be settled, Cobb was leading Lajue by a full seven points, with a 383 batting average to Lajue's 376. While the exact numbers were a little fuzzy at the time, Cobb knew he was ahead. And so, he decided to sit for the final two games so that he couldn't lose any ground due to unforced errors. He cited another flare-up of his purported vision problem. That excuse was, of course, exposed as a pretext for protecting his lead by the media when it was reported that Cobb had spent the final weekend in Philadelphia helping the Athletics prepare for the upcoming World Series against the Cubs. The experts pounced on him, alleging that it was his poor heart, not his poor vision, that kept him sidelined for those final games. Regardless, Lajue was still playing ball, and he faced an almost impossible task of closing a seven-point gap on the final day of the season all by himself, without any chance of Cobb losing any ground. In terms of why this was such a daunting task was the number of at-bats the two candidates had already accrued. Making up seven points meant that Lajue basically could not get out once during that final day's games. He needed to draw the inside straight. But there were other factors in his favor. For example, his squad had a doubleheader that day, so there would be more opportuni opportunities to make up points. And of course, the Naps were still playing the dreadful St. Louis Browns, a historically bad team with the worst pitching staff in baseball. Also on his side was the fact that the Browns, like every other major league baseball team, hated Ty Cobb. But more on that in a moment. The historically bad Browns also had little to play for, so they trotted out their youngest players and mixed and matched players and positions, and their rookie shortstop, Red Corridan, ended up playing third base. Before Lajue stepped up to the plate for his first at-bat, the St. Louis manager, Jack O'Connor, cautioned Corridan to play back. He'll tear your head off with line drives, he said. Corridan obeyed, playing in short left field, with both feet on the grass. It didn't matter, ultimately, because Lajue turned on the pitch and seared the ball to the center field wall for a stand-up triple. But Corridan was deployed to, take, to play deep again for Lajue's second plate appearance. But this time, there was no risk to the third baseman's head. Lajue dropped a bunt and easily beat the throw to first base. The next time up, Lajue bunted again, and again, and again, and again, and again. After the initial triple, Lajue batted, batted eight different times, all of which were bunts. Six of them were fielded by Corridan, who never changed his positioning, and each resulted in infield hits. There was one, however, that didn't count as an at-bat or a hit. Lajue put down a bunt that rolled to the shortstop. Lajue beat out the throw for what appeared to be a hit. But he also advanced a runner. Now, under the scoring at that particular time in baseball history, it was ruled a sacrifice and thus didn't count as a hit or an official at bat. But more on that in a second. Ultimately, even if that at bat wasn't scored a hit, Lajue would go 
an insanely eight for eight that day with seven bunt singles, something that most players don't do in a full season. And in finishing eight for eight on that day, four for four in both games, he brought his average to 384 or .001 higher than Cobb's 383. But remember, this was 1910, not 2020. Stats were not compiled in real time in a manner that was particularly trustworthy. So while most of the baseball community thought Lajoie had bested Cobb, and indeed the Chicago Tribune had crowned him batting champ after the last game of the season, some were still holding out for the official announcement to come from the league office. Indeed, the sporting news proclaimed that Cobb had beat Lajoie by four one-hundred-thousandths of a point. But as with presidential elections, the media doesn't crown batting champions either. Within a few days of Lajoie's 8-for-8 day, the league office called the official numbers for Lajoie, certifying his victory as the American League batting champ. It appeared that the good guy had won the batting race once and for all. Sure, the St. Louis Browns may have put their fingers on the scale, but Lajoie looked poised to receive his fifth American League batting title. People throughout the country were thrilled that the nice guy didn't finish last. Indeed, telegrams of congratulations started pouring in all across the country for Lajoie. Even one signed by eight of Cobb's Detroit Tigers teammates. But remember that bunt that was tallied as a sacrifice and not a hit? Before the final averages were tallied and reported out, it was not clear if that at-bat would end up being consequential. And so during the actual game, it is said that St. Louis's pitching coach, Harry Howell, while in street clothes, rushed to the press box where he allegedly offered a bribe to the official scorer, sports writer E.V. Parrish, to, quote, do well by Lajoie. In other words, to classify it as a hit rather than as a sacrifice. According to one account, there was even an offer of cash. Parrish, however, allegedly declined the bribe and refused to change the scoring decision. Now, the point ultimately became moot after the numbers were finally tabulated. But many in the baseball community were outraged by the events nevertheless, not just in the press box, but the events on the field as well. And just hours after certain sports writers shredded Cobb for sitting out the final few games of the year, those same reporters were challenging the legitimacy of Lajoie's eight for eight day, seven bunt singles and all, and calling into question the ethics of the Browns' front office and organization. One local paper editorialized, all St. Louis is up in arms over the deplorable spectacle conceived in stupidity and executed in jealousy. St. Louis people should sub subscribe to a fund to buy Ty Cobb a Chalmers Auto should it prove that he has lost one he legitimately won. The New York Morning Telegraph columnist Haywood Brown wrote, As the world knows now, Tyrus Raymond Cobb is less popular than Napoleon Lajoie. Perhaps Cobb is the least popular player who ever lived. Whether you like or dislike this young fellow, you must concede him one virtue. What he has won, he has taken by the might of his own play. He asks no quarter and gives none. And in a story titled, St. Louis Team Lays Down to Let Lajoie Win, the Detroit Free Press called the game a farce, a hippodrome which should be investigated by the highest authorities. And it didn't take long for that to happen. American League President Ban Johnson apparently was troubled when suspicions were voiced about Lajoie's remarkable eight-for-eight eight performance, and he was livid when he heard about the attempted bribe by Harry Howell. And so, within a week of that last day of the season, Johnson demanded that Brown's manager Jack O'Connor and Brown's shortstop, who happened to be playing third base that day, Red Corridan, come to his office immediately in Chicago for an interrogation about the events that took place on that last day of the season. O'Connor retold the story that he told reporters after the game, stating, Hey, Lajoie outguessed us. We figured he didn't have the nerve to bunt every single time. 
He beat us at our own game. But Johnson wasn't buying it, and within days he issued his decision. While third baseman Red Corden was absolved, Jack O'Connor and Harry Howell were banned from baseball for life. And just like that, they were canceled. And unlike the bans of Dave Winfield and Fergie Jenkins, for example, these banishments were never reversed. But that's not the end of the story. Before having to make a difficult decision as to whether Lajue's eight-for-eight day needed to be invalidated, whether all eight of those hits, or at least the seven bunt singles, should be canceled, League President Johnson ordered an accounting of the relevant data set, specifically all of Cobb's and Lajue's numbers. And through that process, Johnson's team discovered an anomaly. The Tigers had played a doubleheader on September 24th, but the league statistician had only recorded the first game. Cobb, you see, had gone two for three in that phantom, unaccounted-for game. Accordingly, it turned out that Cobb was not 194 for 506 on the season, but rather 196 for 509, which pushed his average from 383 to 385, and which, after rounding, would be a full point above Lajoie's final average, even with the disputed eight hits. Soon thereafter, Johnson announced his revised findings. He declared that there is no substantial ground for questioning the accuracy of Lajoie's 8-for-8 doubleheader. And he also said that Lajoie's sacrifice, the source of the attempted bribe, should have been ruled a hit. And so, after retabulating the averages for the 1910 season, Johnson announced that Lajoie's final batting average was 384.0, and Cobbs was 384.9. Said Johnson, I will certify that Cobb has a clear title to the leadership of the American League batsmen for the 1910 season and is therefore entitled to the Chalmers Trophy. In any event, the record books nevertheless reflected divisions on the issue. Some still believe that Lajoie was the champ, despite the last-second calculational adjustment. Indeed, for years, some almanacs and baseball fans still identified Lajoie as the champ of that 1910 season. Baseball Nation remained split, even after the league spoke. Perhaps as a Solomonic move to settle the masses, Johnson appealed to Hugh Chalmers to provide cars to both Cobb and Lajoie. While it did little to appease the fans who rooted for, or bet on, the wrong player, Giving both Lajoie and Cobb a new car seemed like a good way to avoid more divisions in the sport and in the country. Chalmers ultimately agreed. As for the players themselves, Lajoie would later state, I've always understood that the automobile I got ran a lot better than the one they gave to Ty. Cobb, on the other hand, seemed less troubled by the controversy surrounding that singular statistical accolade perhaps since he would go on to win eight more American League batting titles, including the next five in a row, and more concerned with his Tigers teammates who had prematurely congratulated Lajoie. Cobb would later state that that offseason, he would sometimes drive by those same teammates in Detroit and wouldn't say a word. Instead, in a characteristically Cobb-like manner, he said, I just honked the horn of my new car at them. That 1910 season was not the last time a Chalmers Award was handed out. Indeed, the very next season, the award returned, this time as a predecessor to a year-end award we're all familiar with today, when the Chalmers was awarded to the most important and useful player to the club and to the league, as determined by a committee of baseball writers. The tradition of presenting league MVP awards, which continues to this day, albeit without the car, was thus born. And that was not the only significant moment in the so-called baseball genealogy 
that emerged in the season following the great 1910 race. After one of Lajue's beloved teammates, Addie Joss, died unexpectedly in the offseason, the Naps organized an exhibition game between Lajue's squad on the one hand and the best players in the league, including Cobb, on the other, in order to raise money for Joss's family. That game, the Addie Joss benefit game, would be the first version of the modern All-Star game. Curiously, while Cobb was traveling to Cleveland for the game, his Tigers uniform was lost in transit, and so he had to borrow one from the home team in Cleveland. And so, for a split moment in baseball history, Cobb and Lajway played on the same field, good versus evil, while both were donning jerseys that read the Cleveland Naps. On the one hand, the great batting title race in 1910 is a classic story about baseball at its peak, and when told only as a morality tale of good versus evil, it has an odd way of appealing to the baseball fans' nostalgia and idealism, even with the allegations of bribery and cheating. After all, there is something endearing about league personnel caring so much about knocking the bad guy down a peg that they would go to such lengths to ensure that the good guy won the title. But that simplistic narrative ignores the dark underbelly of the sport during the dead ball era, namely gambling. To tell the 1910 Chalmers race story while ignoring the fact that the series of events also exposed just how vulnerable the sport truly was to manipulation is to ignore history. For despite President Johnson's seemingly swift and harsh reaction to the controversy, he missed what this might be foreshadowing more broadly for the game, which was namely the corrupting influence of gambling on the sport. And while much of America's head was buried in the sand, that influence was able to infect the most important part of the sport less than a decade later when baseball suffered one of its greatest bruises when eight members of the Chicago White Sox colluded with gamblers to throw the 1919 World Series. In this respect, some commentators have analogized that period in the dead ball era where gambling was pervasive but ignored to the steroid era a hundred years later when performance-enhancing drugs were also pervasive and ignored. Both drastically altered the competitive landscape of the sport, albeit in very different respects, and the corrosive influence of both could have certainly been avoided with more attentive and confrontational leadership. Now, believe it or not, the story of the 1910 batting title race did not end after both stars received their Chalmers automobiles. Despite the fact that the game's metrics would improve rapidly, it took more than a half of a century before the final statistics from that 1910 season finally came into focus. In the late 1970s, baseball statisticians made an effort to begin digitalizing the sports records, and when researchers Pete Palmer and Leonard Gettleson were transposing the data from the 1910 season, they noticed another inconsistency. You see, the doubleheader the Tigers had played on September 24th that the league thought hadn't been recorded actually had been recorded, just on the wrong day. In other words, Cobb's original total had been correct, and Ban Johnson's so-called audit inadvertently gave him credit for that two-for-three game twice. Now, that error wasn't made public until April 18, 1981, when the Sporting News publicized it, and in that publication, the log from that phantom game was printed as well, and that log revealed that someone in the office had clearly realized that an error had been made. The statistics for every player on the Tigers had been crossed out and nullified. Every Detroit player, that is, except one, Ty Cobb. In other words, someone, at some point, perhaps even Ban Johnson, realized that the statistics for that day had already been accounted for and invalidated them for every single player except Cobb. Curiously, 
No league personnel have been banned or even disciplined from baseball for that one. Though it was more than 70 years after the fact, long after both star players had died, it was clear Lajue had actually won the batting title. When Major League Baseball was confronted by this evidence, Commissioner Bowie Kuhn decided to let bygones be bygones, essentially saying that the statute of limitations had lapsed. Nevertheless, others were set on correcting the error, but didn't want to identify new winners or losers from the race. And so, most baseball record books today reflect an odd and contradictory outcome from that 1910 season. Lajoie had the higher average, but Cobb was the winner of the batting title. 110 years later, and elements of history have found attenuated and indirect ways to repeat themselves. A reviled and racist incumbent has once again been unseated by a jovial Northeasterner who drew the proverbial inside straight by winning critical swing contests in Michigan and Pennsylvania. And certain states still have disproportionately stronger influence in resolving such high-profile contests. And litigation lockups like the ones in Pennsylvania now appear to be a regular part of such contests. And the media still wields considerable power to declare victors and losers, irrespective of official results. Recounts and recounts of the recounts are becoming more and more common, and ardent supporters remain unwilling to accept results even when they've been certified and recertified. Oh yeah, and the Major League Baseball team in Cleveland, which has finally canceled its racist moniker once and for all, is in search of a new name. As for me, the one nominee that seems most sensical is, of course, the Cleveland Naps. In light of what Lajoie meant to baseball, to Cleveland, and to people rooting for good guys all across the country, that may be the only nominee that won't be derailed by litigation, declared prematurely the loser by the media, or caught up in years of recounts. I'm Patrick Hammond, and we're 16 days away until Trump is finally canceled from the Oval Office. Thanks for listening.